Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders. Was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. History in five songs. With host Martin Popoff. A production of Pantheon Podcasts. Let's rock out with Martin. Hello once again and welcome back to another episode of History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff brought to you by the good people at Pantheon Podcast. We are a vast and always expanding bunch of wise music swamis. Uh, we are available on uh, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, over 40 other podcast platforms. All right, this is episode 238. I'm calling this a different kind of genius. Uh, why? Um, well, this is a follow-up episode on on 237 which was just called genius and as i got to the end of that episode there were a few people i wanted to talk about that i didn't quite feel fit into what we were talking about and uh and there were some interesting points to be made and they all kind of were of a group and that's what we have here a different kind of genius so um these people, uh, variously, we're going to go over whether or how much I think they are literally a genius or not uh, in the music field. It's pretty interesting. A buddy of mine, Robert Lawson, uh, said this too. I'll probably go through these comments on um, the um, uh, the Facebook page, but but he uh, echoed what I had said. Let's see if I can find his real quick. No, I can't. But anyways, uh, he echoed what I said uh, about this idea of being really strict using the word genius in in, uh, in the context of a, of a rock star boob, you know, just like a rock star, you know, a caveman uh, out there making rock and roll music, this horrible rock and roll music, right? So, so yeah, the, the idea... And, and I, I kept it like that as well. And and as I mentioned, you know, people started mentioning uh, names that I thought, there's no way we, we have to consider these people genius. Anyways, so that episode was about actual uh, geniuses. And what we've got here is uh, is this subset of guys that I thought um, uh, ascribed to this uh, very specific, specific idea of of surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, people who will tell you what they think without regard for offending your sensibilities or treasured opinions. Now that back part of it, I'm not so sure about. I, who knows what goes on in a room? Who knows who has egos, right? Um, but the main point with uh, with everybody we're going to talk about here is the idea that they seek out uh, quiet geniuses, unknown geniuses. They unearth. Uh, treasures uh, to uh, to vampirically uh, you know have them for their own you know that's that's an exaggeration but in some cases maybe it is like that but no um, these are guys that I don't think maybe on their own are geniuses um, although this first one maybe so but um, the idea is that um, their their sheer level of genius is the strategic genius the uh, the smarts um, and the uh, and the striving to want to be so creative that they surround themselves with, um, you know, in some cases, just armies of super smart music swamis, the best in their field. You know, as we talked about a little bit in the genius episode, um, 
because some of those guys, if if you're a, if you're a a player going into a situation like a Snowy Shaw going into a black metal band or an Adrian Ballou going into Talking Heads, David Bowie, Frank Zappa, um, you almost feel like their confidence uh, is is just quiet and rock hard and high. That they're walking in there saying, "I'm just as good or better than this absolute superstar here." Um, but I'm just going to go in and do my job, right? I I have a certain craft. He knows it. I know it. I'm going to go in and do this job, and uh, and I know I can do a, an incredible job. And if I was an if I was a an artist on my own, I'd be doing as good a job as that person. I just don't happen to be as famous. Um, there's kind of that attitude, I think, with these guys, and these big rock stars know that as well. They are smart enough to know that maybe they aren't even the smartest person in the room, and certainly they aren't the smartest person in the room when they picked, I like. Uh, you know, against that person that they picked to be a specialist on that instrument or what they bring to it or production um, or conceptualization, whatever, right? They, they know, they know that these people that they assemble to do these jobs have, have these very specific skills and they just very smartly put all the chess pieces uh, in place uh, to do this. Uh, interesting thing I wanted to mention as well. Um, I went and uh, and made up a list. I just cut and pasted from uh, Podbay or, yeah, I think it was Podbay I used or Amazon. Anyways, you know how we have the five song clips all the time. I made this big long master list of all 236 episodes or seven at that point um, and stuck in all the song clips. Um, and I've been sending that out to my database of book buyers. Um, so everybody's got a copy of that or a long list of things um, or the, the episodes like without the song stripped in so I, I stuck both in there but the point is is uh, I can now go through and see if I've used a song clip uh, before and it's pretty interesting so I did that with this one and made sure that none of these um, actually I didn't I didn't check a couple of them but I um, I made sure on some of them that I did want to check that I didn't use the exact same track before so it's pretty interesting so anyways let's go to into our first selection here Take a listen to this. This is Peter Gabriel with The Family in the Fishing Net. Okay, so love this album to death. The Security album is probably his most iconic in terms of like a unified sound. It's the sound he was building on Melt, uh, but he gets to this. So Peter Gabriel, I definitely feel uh, fits in this category. Um, And he's one, well, you know, there's actually more here too, but... uh, at least a couple, but I'm going to say that, uh, that Peter Gabriel, I could almost stuck him in the genius episode, right? But he is great at this as well. He is great at, um, you know, finding the right people, assembling the people to, to, uh, to put out his vision. Now I didn't want to include anybody in this episode who I thought was just along for the ride, um, not doing the work, um, not even leading the thing, but being swept up in the whole thing, or even being like like down into the equal zone. I wanted everybody here to be um, the driver of the vision, uh, absolutely the boss, and um, and 
you know, not feeling intimidated at all and, and literally um, wanting these people to, uh, to get the, the sounds in his head uh, down on tape kind of thing, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, Peter Gabriel early on, he's got, he's got Robert Fripp in there. He's got Steve Hunter and Dick Wagner. So we, we've got, you know, these session guys that are known to do this. Tony Levin. So essentially what happens, um, which I find uh, the most interesting here is that he's always got a ton of producers and programmers and classical people, but as he moves along, he pretty much realizes that he's got a couple of these quiet geniuses, treasures in their own field, such as Larry Fast on synthesizers and Jerry Murata on very, you know, innovative kind of drums, uh, who's eventually uh, replaced uh, by Manu Kachete. Did I pronounce that right? Uh, David David Rhodes on very futuristic guitar. Uh, did I mention Tony Levin? Yeah, Tony Levin on, you know, stick bass and, and fretless, just fretless and uh, like such a cool sound so he um he goes through these different mere mortals and uh arrives at this idea where um he he realizes he's smart enough to know that that he is the boss it's his name on the tin he's he's singing all this stuff and he's bringing all these iconic different voices and he's a keyboardist and he's conceptually everything here is he's creating this this mood this environment that is uh that is very peter gabriel-esque like i say starts in a big way on the third album um, and then it's, it's hugely there on security and then it's starting to wane or, or starting to change into something a little different. I think so us up that whole thing, um, is, uh, is, is kind of, of a set. Um, but what he realizes is that, uh, that these people, you know, I would say, especially, uh, a Jerry Murata, a Tony Levin, um, and yeah, Larry Fast. I'm, although I know Peter Gabriel, you know Peter is is very involved in in all of that end of it as well. But he realizes that these people are as much uh, a, a part of the Peter Gabriel sound that he is, and he's and his ego is. Um, well, I don't know where his ego is, but he's smart enough to know that uh, that. Um, this great product that they put out is not all due to him, that he's got these great people along the way. And it, it's pretty interesting how, um, you know, the lineup stays pretty solid, except for the, like I say, the armies of players who are bringing in ideas, who are teaching him things, who are keeping him creatively fired, right? Um, but it's pretty much the same on So and Us and, and Up, and even all the way up into I.O., he's got some of the same people on there, right? And I think that album, I don't know, something about it is rubbing me the wrong way. It's it's sounding like a very, almost like a commercial, easy listening version of the So Us uh, Peter Gable. It's kind of odd. I'm not sure quite what to think of it yet, but I think it's pretty cool that he keeps these people, but he's got the, uh, the armies as well. Um, all right, let's take a short break and we'll be right back. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well... 
I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. All right, back again here. History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff. Um, episode 238, A Different Kind of Genius. Take a listen to our second track, and we shall discuss. This is King Crimson with Three of a Perfect Pair. One, one, two minutes, it's a
All right, three of a perfect pair. That little passage of music is my favorite piece of King Crimson music of all time. I just love that. I love what the bass is doing. It's so incredibly groovy. Uh, but yeah, that chorus of three of a perfect pair is my favorite King Crimson music. That's from the third album uh, from the Red, Blue, Yellow period, third and last, uh, March 1984. Um, so we are talking about Robert Fripp here. What kind of genius is Robert Fripp? Um I would, again, be inclined almost to just call him a musical genius, period, anyways. I could have shoved him back into episode 237 and said, Robert Fripp, let's celebrate Robert Fripp. But I I, I feel there's there's kind of a weirdness to him. There's there's obviously the, the, the sort of prickliness of his personality. There's um there there's the the almost the the eclectic um that you don't want to call it genius, but you want to call it magic in in some way. The things that he does on guitar, um, he's got he's got the traditional thing that you hear a fair bit through the albums, but he's also got the Frippertronics thing, and he's got that really cool burbly soloing style. Um, I was just on with a good buddy of mine, Daniel Bosch. We uh, we went through uh, for his channel, went through David Bowie's Scary Monsters, and uh, I was just extolling again how Teenage Wildlife is my favorite. Um, Robert Fripp uh, performance ever. But yeah, the crazy thing is um, the reason I, I kind of want to put him in this episode is because uh, he is just part of this this freight train of this band uh, with all these other people. And I'd say even less so than Peter Gabriel. And obviously, he's, you know, the name on the tin is King Crimson. It's not like Peter Gabriel where it's a person's name. Um I, I feel like he's he's less of uh, of driving the entire thing uh, that a, that a Peter Gabriel would be on his albums, uh, and he's got all these strong presences. Uh, you know, uh, Mel Collins. You know, you go back to go back to the fact that there's um, a lot of instrumentation that is 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 foreign to. Robert Fripp. I mean, you know, as a guitarist, obviously, but it's not that is not guitar, bass, and drums. So there's all these kind of classical, jazzy, kraut rock arrangements all over the place too. Uh, but yeah, you've got later on, you've got Pat Mastelato and Gavin Harrison. So you've got some of the greatest drummers of all time uh, as part of the thing. You've got Pete, Peter Sinfield in on lyrics. You got Michael Giles on drums. Uh, Ian, Ian McDonald, uh, you know, in the in the same role as a Mel Collins kind of thing. Um, Different, different lead vocalists, Gordon Haskell, um, who plays bass as well, Ian Wallace, you know, Bill Bruford at one point uh, is in there with uh, with Jamie Muir. Um, you know, Jamie and Bill are both completely distinctive uh, drummers. So, you know, I guess I guess to, to back into, you know, the definition of this thing. So this is Robert Fripp. Uh, wanting to work with the greatest in their field, right? Uh, in this thing, people who are, are are as creative and as fearlessly creative as he is, and uh, and want to just just create this massive, um, this massive almost train wreck. Um, you know, in in certain respects, there's train wrecks on the '70s stuff, and there's trains wreck train wrecks after. The, the red blue yellow period as well um but but these these great cacophonies of sound maybe abstract sound uh maybe industrial sound um that robert fripp is just uh just in there as one of the guys and and i almost i almost want to use as a metaphor to what i think robert fripp's role is uh in the fact that he's sitting down that that's kind of an interesting thing as well so so on stage there's a lot of people number one you know, a couple of drummers, uh, whatever. I mean, a lot of people, um, 
and uh, and he is just sitting down there kind of looking around bemused with that sort of uh, blank stare on his face uh you know the odd smirk the odd smile and uh and he just realizes that that he's got a lot of really important puzzle pieces he's he's basically playing with kings and rooks and and uh and bishops uh, kind of thing, right? Kings, queens, rooks, bishops, uh, horsies, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever. Uh, but but it's like everybody's important. That's that's kind of the, kind of the point here. So so yes, he is surrounding himself with super smart people uh, all the time, kind of thing. John Wetton, we know he was part of the part of the thing as well. Boz Birrell, who goes on to uh, to Bad Company, that's pretty cool. Um, so yeah, there we go. That's uh, King Crimson. Let's play our third selection here. Take a listen to this. This is Robert Plant with Come Into My Life. Okay, so now um, it subtly, subtly shifts here. Uh, so what I think you get with the Robert Plant is uh, I think out of the three guys we have so far, he's the least talented. He's the least genius out of all these guys so far. Um, you know, he doesn't play an instrument. He writes really cool lyrics and he's a singer. Um, but, you know, really good lyrics, as we discussed in the last episode. I don't even want to put Bob Dylan uh, in the... In the uh, in the genius category because I'm really even harder on calling anybody a literary genius and I don't think I'd call anybody a literary genius um, or just a, or just a genius just because of the words they write sort of thing. But yeah, Robert Plant, I got to tell you this, man. Go back and read a lot of his lyrics. They are way better than he gets reputation for. He's a damn good lyricist. Um, anyways, so his big level of genius is absolutely perfect for this episode. It is really surrounding himself with uh, communicatively with people who are smarter than he is people who will tell you what they think without regarding or offending your sensibilities now i think what robert wants um the interesting thing he wants along the way is he wants uh youth fresh ideas um and as time goes on as we know he gets into this really interesting sort of conceptual thing of like what if i made old-timey music but uh, I, I don't necessarily always, he does a lot of covers, but I don't necessarily have to cover things. But when we write things, I want them even to sound old. And I want the recording techniques to sound old. And I want I want old traditional instruments. But even if, if it's new traditional instruments, I want to use all the technology available to make it sound like it came out of 1830, right? Um, so that's kind of what he gets into. Um, but early on, famously, famously, we've got Robbie Blunt, who comes up from that uh, Bronco and Home thing, kind of a nobody, but then he just absolutely distinguishes himself across those couple of albums. We've got Phil Collins in there helping. We know he's a big presence. We got Jez Woodruff, a great keyboardist, was on in in Sabbath as well. Um, and uh, not officially, but you know what I mean. Uh, brings in Cozy Powell, brings in Barry Moore Barlow. Uh, he eventually replaces his uh, his drummers with Richie Hayward. So he thinks, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna combine this absolutely Devo esque, very uh, forward thinking um, uh, synthesizer music, and I'm gonna bring in the Little Feet drummer, right? So that's really cool. Um, then we're into this, uh, a bunch of unknown guys, Phil Johnston, Doug Boyle, Phil Scrag, um, Chris Blackwell, uh, Phil 
uh, Scrag gets replaced by Charlie Jones. This is your now and Zen manic Nirvana period. Um, later on. So yeah, come into my life. Uh, I wanted to play because, uh, we're into the great fate of nations album, May 25th, 1993. And I wanted to play one of the two tracks with the great Francis Dunnery, uh, on them. I've got piles of Francis Dunnery solo albums. Love the guy to death, but he's in there along with Kevin, uh, McMichael from, uh, cutting crew, sadly no longer with us. Um, but then we get into this whole John Baggett, Porl Thompson, um, Justin Adams, Charlie Jones, uh, back, uh, Clive Deemer. We're moving through this, uh, this, uh, you know, now, now he's, he's smart enough to even realize that these geniuses he has with them deserve a band name. So they're, they're the strange sensation. Then they're the, the, uh, sensational space shifters. Um, you know, some of the same guys, Leon Skin Tyson's up there. We got Joel Day Camara, Billy Fuller, um, Dave Smith. So as we move on, there's, um, there's again this this army of people that nobody's ever heard of. You know, you got Band of Joy where he's working with the Nashville people. He works with Allison Cross Kraus. So the point here is that Robert Plant is perfect, perfect, perfect at this. He he realizes he's coming into the situation. I think he even knows more than these other guys that um that even him in in a big band with a bunch of members, I, I think he probably has a little bit of uh um you know let's not take it too far, but let's not say imposter, uh, uh, syndrome, but, but he, he appreciates, uh, when someone can play their instruments well and, and he is cognizant that he doesn't do that. Right. Um, so he's, he's arranging all these parts. He's part of a band. He loves being part of a band. We know he'll jump on stage and jam with people. Right. Um, which is really cool, but he's, he's, he's got this vision. Um, but I think he's uh, even even less so than, or definitely less so than Peter Gabriel. Uh, he's got this vision, but he really needs a lot of people to put this together. You almost think Peter Gabriel, uh, given the amount, given time, and he takes a lot of time anyways. But given time, he could probably do most things himself and come up with that vision. I don't think Robert Plant feels that way, uh, but he loves that he has a vision and he can get these people together and make this uh, this old timing. Uh, you know, who do I always call old timey, right guys? The band and Creedence Clearwater Revival, right? Uh, but he can make this, he can make this, uh, or Tom Waits, right? It's a little Tom Waitsy. Um, he can make this old time music, um, because he's smart enough, he's genius enough uh, to go find the best people to work with. All right, uh, let's play our fourth selection here. Take a listen to this. This is Bjork with Black Lake. I love this. Uh, so yeah, I, I might've mentioned this before, but I, on a trip to New York, I went to the MoMA and there was a massive, uh, Bjork, uh, display on, and, uh, they were playing the, um, the video to this. This is a 10 minute song off of Volnacara, January 20th, 2015. So we're a few albums ago now. Um, but you know, with a, with a pretty good sound system, but a big video screen and a darkened room, the only thing in that room. And I, I watched that thing like three or four times. It was so powerful, right? This great, great video. You should check it out on, on YouTube. It's an amazing video. This is her big, you know, distraught breakup album. Right. Um, but, uh, 
But yeah, so going through just some of the latest albums, and I'll sort of explain where I'm going with this. Biophilia, uh, 2011, produced by English dubstep duo 16-bit uh, with Bjork. Volnikarna is, uh, is uh, yeah, Volnik, Volnikira. Sorry. Volnikira, I always get there. Anyways, um, so uh, produced by Bjork and Arca. This is a female Venezuelan electronic music record producer. And the Haxon Cloak, uh, who is a guy. It's Bobby Kerlick, uh, known by his stage name, the Haxon Cloak. British composer, artist music producer musician i'm going somewhere with this um but yeah you look at you look at bjork um some of these albums as we move through them we got utopia 2017 which is basically uh bjork and arca and fasara 2022 um uh, let's see. It uh, features American singer Serpent with Feet, Bjork, uh, Two Children, Sindra and Isadora, Indonesian dance duo, Gabber Modus Operandi, bass clarinet, sextet, Murmuri. So <laughs> she is so artsy and so artistic, right? That that uh, that even it, it's it's almost amusing reading her credits on these albums. But so it's essentially um, it's usually the case because she's she's quite an electronic artist, right? So but electronic with a lot of classical. So it's usually the case that, that what you get with Bjork uh, is you get Bjork, you get this major, major uh, Swiss army knife uh, producer, keyboardist, synthesizer, conceptualizer with Bjork. Uh, and then you often get these choirs of people from Iceland or, or little, little, you know, classical quartets, sextets, whatever, bunch of classical people, instrument, in, interesting instruments. So it's like, it's like three things, Bjork, uh, the futuristic stuff and the, and the old folk stuff, right? All mixed together and making these amazingly layered, huge albums. So again, um, this is a this is a slightly different dynamic to all of them so far. Um, this is almost like um, Bjork working with a small team and then this massive uh, and you know enlarged team that's not really the band, right? Kind of thing. So it's it's like it's like she's making these duo trio albums and then and then there's a, this army of people all around that do things. So pretty interesting. And then also with Bjork. So much of it is uh, is wrapped up in the video presentation as well. So she's working with all those people. So again, this is Bjork making herself an extraordinary, extraordinary artist, um, but doing it by just seeking out quietly the most creative people on the planet to collaborate with. And that's that's uh, that's what makes her so amazing. Um, and it's and it is kind of what's what what Peter Gabriel's doing it, but but once you get to Bjork from Peter Gabriel, you're almost seeing um, you're just going uh, up into this impossibly artsy, snobby world that even you thought Peter Gabriel is is like that or King Crimson. No, Bjork is on a whole nother level, right? This is this is like this is like the most distilled uh, version of creativity that you can you can sort of possibly imagine. Um, all right, let's move on to our fifth selection here. This is David Bowie with Love is Lost. All right, so this is from The Next Day, his second-to-last album, March 8th, 2013. Uh, this is literally my favorite David Bowie song from all of those later albums, which are amazing. Uh, well, you know, put it this way. This is my favorite David Bowie song 
pretty much moving forward from Scary Monsters, which is my favorite David Bowie album. So from 1980 all the way to the end, love this song to death. It's really cool, sinister, dark. Another thing, this might be a whole episode. I don't even know how I'm going to articulate this, but um, I, I, it's David Bowie. This song and a lot of David Bowie songs and like Morrissey, I'm, I'm, I'm like flabbergasted with the idea of what kind of music is this right it's it's really interesting how how him and morrissey make this really conservative music that you've never heard anywhere else before so so i don't know wrap your head around that one tell me if uh, if i'm making sense but of course we know bowie um you know has gone through all of these different eras and i think you really get that sort of vampire drawing energy thing from bowie i think bowie is is very much like a peter gabriel situation where he just knows um he can he can do some extraordinary work if he just goes and seeks out wherever they may be, no matter how famous they are or aren't. He doesn't care. Um, he's almost happier if they're not famous, um, and find these people and collaborate with them. Um, and I think that goes with producers as well. Of course, Tony Visconti has has always been very important to this whole thing. Um, but then you're you know all these all these names uh, you know these these boring sounding names of these bands it's a funny thing with uh, with uh, bowie but you've got mike garson on keyboards you've got dennis davis on drums carlos olimar george murray on bass so you've got all these people who have been around for a lot of albums and done some really extraordinary sounding things but then of course you've got adrian Ballou on lodger you've got robert fripp doing some of his greatest work on some of some of these songs heroes and whatnot right um Along the way, you get, you get, you know, Brian Eno is a big part of things as well with synths and production and stuff in those, in those Berlin uh, years. Uh, you've got uh, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan plays with him for a bit. Peter, uh, Peter Frampton plays with him for a bit. Iggy Pop is involved, right? So there's, there's all of these uh, interesting sort of, did Iggy actually, hang on, did, is Iggy literally doing anything on Bowie albums or is it only vice versa? I, I, I can't remember now. Uh, anyways, uh, all along the way, you get, you get all sorts of, um, you get horn sections, you get strings. So he really, uh, we got Gail Ann Dorsey. She's super important along the way as well. Um, you've got getting, getting together with the, the sales brothers for Tin Machine. So David Bowie definitely is uh, one of these guys. Um, again, he fits perfectly this concept of, uh, is he a genius on his own or would he be? I don't know. But um, you get to the end of this great, long, extraordinary life and career, and he's made some of the greatest albums of all time, super creative. Um, but when I considered him for the last episode, I go, hmm, is is he a genius on his own? Um, I don't know. Um, I, I, think, I think the theme of this episode is these, these, all of these people are sort of over half most of the way there to be in a genius and then they go right over the top and they even beat most of our geniuses because of how great they are as collaborators so that's kind of the whole idea here um yeah yeah a couple others i kind of thought uh that you know i i almost kind of put stephen wilson in here as well i think he kind of fits um but the reason i didn't put him in is credit to him i think he is Probably, if you lined him up against all of the people we just talked about, he is closer to being a genius and doing most of the heavy lifting than most of these people are. Um, 
I, I noticed uh, my, uh, my, my, my screen on my other computer has gone dark here. It's gone into sleep, so I'm not going to read these comments. Plus, we're at the end, but I just wanted, but from memory, uh, I can't remember who it was, but someone made a great case for um, Tom Waits as, a, as belonging in the Genius episode. There were a lot of points. Go check out our Facebook page. Um, was Pete Townsend brought? I think someone brought up Pete Townsend, and uh, I initially... I initially kind of dismissed him in that whole thing, but then I started thinking about all the all the synthesizer stuff, the conceptual stuff, you know, the early work with loops, um, uh, the things like Lifehouse that he didn't get to do. Um, so there's there's um, yeah, you know, Pete Townsend's kind of close as well, um, and one that's a little off the path that I thought might fit this episode a little bit but would be different from all of these because I think all everybody I picked here lines up really nice is Alice Cooper uh, with his I wouldn't say Alice Cooper on his own is any sort of genius but um, he's been really smart with uh, surrounding himself with positive young people who are really professional and do their job well but that's kind of different I mean you know Alice Cooper is not trying to write masterpieces in, in, in the same way that, that these people uh, that we've talked about here are. Um, you know, and come to think of it, out of the five we've talked about, I think I think Robert Plant is not trying to write ma masterpieces either. We've talked about what he's trying to do. But uh, but no, Alice doesn't fit in that, but he's just, he's, he's like a genius at life. I've, I've talked about his life and you and you go through the whole thing and you do the timeline as I've done uh, on, on everything he's accomplished and he's, he's packed in more living than I think anybody I can think of outside yeah, maybe Paul McCartney right um, anyways there you go that's episode 238 a different kind of genius if you like this show and want to support future episodes please go to ko-fi.com slash martin popoff hit that red support button and uh, buy me a coffee or a pint this week I would like to thank Ron Bartkowiak Joe Becht Marco Beck um, Brandon Belt uh, Andy at Black Sugar Transmission, David Bottas, uh, Jeffrey Coggins, Tony Kennedy, Brendan Jarvis, Matt Legro, John Olson, Augustin Garcia Dupriti, Steve Polari, Dan Rosenson, Martin Sashan, and John Stuckey. Thank you all very much. Uh, you can go to martinpopoff.com for all your book needs. You can check out our video channel, The Contrarians, and you can hear me on uh, Sea of Tranquility with my good buddy Pete Pardo every Friday morning. Um, that's it for now. Um, yeah, please go over to the Facebook page. Tell me who else fits this collaborative genius uh, category and who else fits the, uh, the true genius category. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> I'm dead. <laughs> 
From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.